1: Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Socola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Joe Chott, Senior Vice President of Private Banking at Brown Brothers Harriman, one of the oldest and largest privately held banks in the United States. Welcome, Joe.
2: Thanks, Laura. Thanks for having me.
1: Now, tell us a little bit about Brown Brothers Harriman. What's your 30-second elevator pitch?
2: Great, thanks. Well, I think you hit the, one of the highlights up front. But we are—we've been around for over 200 years. We're one of wow. the largest privately held banks in the country. We're actually still a private partnership, which a lot of our um, competitors were at some point before they all kind of started going public and getting into other things. So today, we—you know—we have a couple main businesses, but the one that I'm primarily involved in is working with privately held businesses, endowments, foundations, and kind of handling anything around their investment management, financial planning, or just sort of general advice.
1: Nice. Nice. So then with all of that, what is your favorite part of your job and why?
2: It's a great question. My favorite part of the job is just getting to interact with some of the most successful and interesting people in the country. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, we deal a lot with privately held businesses and, you know, we get to deal with folks that you would know. I mean, they're, they're some of the largest businesses in the country, successful public company executives and just sort of hearing their stories, their struggles, how they were successful, and then kind of getting to know them on an intimate, personal level, helping them with some things in their family or just sort of their personal finances. It's a really interesting job, and every single day is different.
1: That's actually, ironically, one of the things I love most about mine is the range of people that I get to talk to on things like the podcast here. And let me tell you, there are no two days that are the same. That is for sure. Now, what's something that's coming up in your company or in the industry that's, that's exciting to you right now?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the more exciting things that are going on out there that's a big change and a difference is ESG, which is Environmental Social Governance Investing. It's really about bringing people's personal beliefs and what's in their values and what's important to them, kind of marrying it with their investment strategy. And that has been a huge trend over the last few years, and and I think it's only continuing to grow. Part of that is politics and kind of people's personal beliefs. A lot of that is blending into how they approach managing their investments, how they sort of set up their family, whether it's trusts or just sort of basic financial planning. And that is a big trend in our industry.
1: So in concrete terms, hypothetically, for people who are looking to invest their money for their own value later on, if they also happen to have a passion in the environment or in animals or in fuel or in whatever it is that they can developing countries, et cetera, they can choose to invest more specifically in those areas because they feel like it's not only good for themselves economically, but it is good to help promote these causes that they happen to be passionate about at the same time.
2: That's exactly right. And it could be, it sort of takes on two different flavors. It could be, you know, a negative screen where I don't want to invest in fossil fuels because I believe in climate change and I don't want to support the fossil fuel companies that are acting against my wishes. Or it could be positive. I want to support a venture activity that's going to help bring clean water to inner cities or both. And it could be a, a wide variety in between. And so that. We're getting a lot of questions, particularly around you know, some of our larger family clients, our younger clients that might have different values than the previous generation. That That's a big trend in our industry, and, and it's exciting. Now, you mentioned that there's
1: quite the range there between, of course, those who are super environmentally conscious, and there are those who want to support the fossil fuel industry versus the older generations and the younger generations and how they differ politically and philosophically. So that's a lot of wide variety in audiences that you have to, in some way, provide the same kind of service to. And in order to do that, how do you have to adjust your messaging when you're talking to those different groups?
2: Yeah, I think it's, it's a great question. It's something that you know I go into every one of these conversations thinking about. You have to first start out by kind of knowing your audience. And that, that's not always as easy as you might think. I mean, you may not know, particularly when you start meeting people for the first time, what their beliefs are. You, you don't know. And so I think, you know, you first have to kind of present everything in a very neutral way until you, unless you really know where they're coming from. And so, you know, for an example, if I knew someone was very supportive of higher taxes, supportive of paying their fair share, let's say not to use a political term, but I would go into that conversation differently. I would be less, and I have been less interested in pushing more tax efficient, you know, planning or tax efficient strategies, sort of creating my wealth planning message Around other things, more I might emphasize more values or more next generation things, or I may decide to emphasize more of the environmental or impact investing I mentioned earlier. And so, first, it's I try and be very neutral, and then if I know where they're coming from, I'll tailor my message accordingly. But it's it's not always as easy as it sounds. It's it, it could be very challenging.
1: Sure, I, I can imagine that might be counterintuitive for a lot of people, even. You know, I know when I think about preparing my own taxes, let me rephrase that, I do not prepare my own taxes, but getting ready to pay taxes in in April, et cetera, that, you know, you of course expect, I expect to pay my fair share, but I don't want to pay more than is necessary. I want to invest it where possible. But if your natural tendency for many people is to minimize tax burden of sorts, and I don't mean You know, overly cheap, whatever, but again, not pay more than is necessary. And others are thinking, no, I don't want you. It would be strange to hear someone say back to me, actually, I'm not trying to minimize my taxes. I believe it's my responsibility to pay as much as is necessary because I can, because I'm more successful. I mean, that's a beautiful concept from their sense of generosity, but it would be counterintuitive from a financial, a personal financial planning kind of perspective that that would throw me off, I have to admit.
2: Yeah. And I wouldn't, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. We're not going out there pushing for people to pay more. It's just more of, no, but if that's what
1: they say that they want to do, that they're not trying to pay less as it were.
2: Yeah. I would say it's more about what to emphasize and sort of where your priorities go. I mean, you have some that that are very tax sensitive and you have some that are not. And I think it's more about, you think about when I, when I kind of consider how am I going to approach a situation or particular conversation it's sort of, what am I thinking about emphasizing? What am I going to start with, lead with, go deep on, and what am I going to kind of make a lower priority? Yes. And so to me, that's more what it is versus, you know, we're not going in there saying you should pay more. It's more about what you're emphasizing.
1: Sure. And that's a great way to to frame just about everything that we do. When you're having a conversation with somebody, what do you emphasize? What's most important to them? What do they need to hear? What do they need to hear you say? That's, so what is it that you're emphasizing? I think that's a great takeaway from this. So in order to do that, as far as your own skill set is concerned, what do you think is something that you're really good at communication-wise? And on the flip side, what's something you wish you were better at?
2: Yeah, I, I think I, I do a pretty good job building relationships with people pretty quickly. I, I, you know, it's basically what I do for a living. And so you have to sort of quickly be able to try and build rapport, just try and get to know somebody, you know, build a relationship there. I think that that's something that I've learned to do over time. The What can I improve on? I think it's a couple things when it comes time to actually getting into it. Maybe the, the elevator pitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go back and edit that. But that's <laughs> something I've always tried to tweak and think about, okay, what's most relevant to the broadest audience? And it's something that I tweak every day. I think about every day how I'm going to change that differently. So maybe we can follow up, Laura, you can help me with that. <laughs>
1: It is funny because the elevator pitch, it's often the things that are the simplest that are the most difficult because simple doesn't necessarily mean easy. And uh, I I can't tell you how many times I've been to networking events or working with clients on how to do their own elevator pitch. And these are people who run multi gazillion dollar companies. And they're going, yeah, my elevator pitch. How do I tell people what I do? And I, I even struggle with the same thing. It's what I do for a living. I'm great at helping others do it. But for me to get nice and concise, exactly what I do and the value prop and whatnot in that 30 seconds or less, it is a challenge. So uh, I think it's something we could all stand to, to work on often what the expression, the cobbler's kids have no shoes. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> my, my, cobblers kids have no verbal shoes to, to work on here. but what about role models? Who's somebody that you have admired as a communication role model and why?
2: Yeah so I, I would say that given what I do that's more of a complex selling I tend to admire people that can take incredibly complex concepts or ideas and make them simple or kind of express them in a simple way that everybody can understand. So it's going to be cliche from for an investment professional but Warren Buffett is a great example. If anybody's interested in investing, reads his shareholder letters, listens to him answer questions. He uses stories, anecdotes, expresses incredibly complex concepts in a very simple way. So that that would be one. I would also add our chief investment strategist Scott Clemens. If any of our clients have heard him, does a great job, kind of doing the same thing at a local level for our clients. And then the last I would say, as a Villanova graduate, is, is Jay Wright. I think he does a great job. Not necessarily complex, but more just sort of expressing a strategy, a culture, and really making everybody in the community feel part of it. So, from a communication, those are those are some good ones to model.
1: Absolutely. Now, I'm curious. if For everybody knows the name Warren Buffett. I think that's a pretty common one. I don't know that yeah. people would have thought to look into his those newsletters for uh, for stories and to look at him as a as an ideal storyteller. Not that people would necessarily have heard him speak. They just I think, know the name. It's something that you could check off a list as something you've heard of, but have you listened to him? That's different. Is there an easy link or a, an easy way to find other than just sort of a Google search to get some examples of his stories?
2: Oh, there are countless. I mean, a Google search, you'll get a lot of hits, and it's pretty much all free. Um, there are books. If you go on Amazon, there are books that will categorize all of his showholder letters and writings over the years. But if a simple Google search, you'll get you'll get most of them.
1: All right, everybody. So that's an interesting role model for us all to look at because storytelling, I think, is is one of the finest arts and science combinations in communication. So and hey, if you can find somebody who's good at it, so much the better. Go f- listen, see what hits you, and what you can learn from them. Thank you for sharing that one. It's a great of little course. extra nugget in there. Now. What about you and having to shift your own speech style? We talked about it a little bit when you've got all of these you know, people with different political backgrounds, etc, um, or I shouldn't say backgrounds, but uh, you know, preferences and how it may influence the way that they want to invest their money. Uh, but how have you had to learn to shift your style to connect with different groups of whatever sort? And was it hard to adapt in some of these ways while still feeling like you know you're being yourself?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So maybe I'll, I'll shift a little bit because we already talked about the prior example. Um, sure. You know, our business is generally an older business, so people that do what I do are generally older. So I, for throughout my career, I've been on the younger side from an age an age standpoint, and that most of the clients and people we were talking to were, were generally older than I was. And so, you know, from a style standpoint, from an authenticity standpoint, it was a lot of you know trying to kind of communicate and for. Person on the other side of the table to kind of say, Well, you're my grandson's age, or you're my, and it was almost dismissive. And it was true. I was, um, even though we had different experiences, they looked at that as a negative. And so it took a long time to kind of shift my thinking around. And as I've gotten more experience, that some of that's gone away, but it definitely caused me to shift my communication style a little bit and emphasize different things. So, as an example, I used to emphasize what the firm said, what Certain managers would say, you know, make the the opinion about someone with more authority than I had at the time and that had more credibility. And so that really helps because that was the truth, right? Those were the people that we were following, but it was them and I was just communicating it versus me. Now, that was early on in my career. A lot's changed since then, but that took me a long time to kind of shift that around and, and work that into my communication style.
1: And you felt like that was still, it, you didn't feel like, and I think it's important to recognize that in doing so, you can borrow the content from others, be able to cite your sources, as it were, you know, according to Absolutely. the partners of the company, it gives you authority for, for holding these, but you can still eventually turn them into your own interpretation and your own advice as well. Not just, well, the boss said X, so here it is.
2: No, you can't do that. Right. <laughs> it has to be, It has to be authentic, but there's a nuance there in the way you present an opinion, right? It's, it's, as you said, it's an expert's opinion. Here's, you know, how I see it versus it's just, it's just me talking. There's a nuance there, but yet you still have to be authentic.
1: Tell me about that nuance. Let's, let's, I'm going to poke in that area there. What's, give me some of the examples of how that nuance would sound, how it would manifest.
2: Sure. I mean, so you would use an example such as manager X believes that this is a great business to own. I agree and here's why, right? You you basically start with the premise that this expert that we all that has long-term credibility, a 30-year investor has belief in something. And then from my standpoint when I go to communicate that, you sort of take that and I add my own spin to it. So the, the base premise is sort of proven and then I make it authentic and you know, it's it is what I believe in. And so I think you know, people hear that and and sort of buy in, okay, it's not only this expert opinion, but the person that I know at a local level and trust that relationship, they believe the same thing and have expanded on it.
1: Yes. Yes. So okay, everybody, that was a great example that he just mapped out as far as how to structure the the beginning of some of those comments to to get the foundation in and to I'm going to use the term in air quotes to buy a, a little or borrow a little bit of credibility, as it were, and then establish your own from there. It's just a springboard, but it's a great tool, great strategy to use. Now, this brings us to our influence challenge of the day. So Joe, this is your opportunity to talk directly to our audience and challenge them to take one step that they can complete in its entirety within 24 hours to have more influence. How would you like to challenge our audience today?
2: Well, I'll challenge myself. Okay. I think it's an elevator pitch. I think, you know, it's it's so crucial and something that almost everybody can improve on. You just never know who you're going to meet in your daily life, professional life, socially, formally, professionally, and someone says, "What do you do?" And it's a, it's the easiest question. It's a natural opening question, and people sort of fumble, they either talk too much, they don't say enough, they don't know how to answer it. And so, to me, everybody can improve Me included on how to make that more interesting and more impactful. So the elevator pitch, and I'll take that challenge on myself.
1: Nice, nice. I love it. All right, we'll have you back to, um, or otherwise we'll we'll get you to make a little recording and and share it with us in another another platform or, or connect with us later on to share the upgrade. You know, I think you used a really important word both when previously when we were discussing it offline, but also just now, and it's the word interesting and. I think a lot of people and it seems to frequently with all the clients that I've worked with be people who are often in financial services, uh, accountants or others where the perception is that the rest of the world thinks what you do is boring or the fear or the assumption that, okay, well, I like what I do and that's why I do it. But nobody else is going to care. So there's almost this sheepishness or this almost apologetic tone to set the stage for whatever you're about to say and and I can't tell you the number of people I've worked with where they're like, well, but I'm just a, an analyst or I'm I'm just a this or just and I, I always want to say stop just defying this kind of of self-deprecation look self-deprecation has has its place in humor and in whatever else. but if you're pitching not and I don't mean sales pitching but elevator, Pitching. The whole idea is to give someone a quick little bait, a little taste of information that makes them say a wonderful little three word phrase in response. Not I love you, although that one's nice too, but just simply tell me more, right? just something to kind of pique their interest and want them to know more about you. And so I don't think it's about worrying whether or not your audience will think what you do for a living is interesting. What matters most is that it sounds like you do. Because I mentioned to you earlier, Joe, that I love my accountant. and one of the things I, I love about working with him if we are going to prepare taxes or do whatever else is that he loves talking about tax accounting and whatever new legislation and ha- whatever new ideas he has. Granted my eyes glaze over sometimes. I will confess that because numbers and taxes and I do not taxes and numbers don't work in my brain that way. But I love the fact that he loves it because that's exactly the person that I want to talk to more, that I want to hire. Why on earth would I want to hire a tax accountant who feels about taxes like I do? That would be the worst mistake ever. I mean, if you hate public speaking and you want to get better at it, you would come to me. You would not go to somebody else who feels like you do, hates public speaking to get help on it. So you know, stop justifying the self-deprecation and just show people why you love what you do. So, all right, I'm done with my soapbox. Joe, feel free to uh, comment from there.
2: (laughs) No, I think it's a great point. I mean, we all, we do all feel that way, especially again, coming back to the elevator pitch. And when you're meeting someone, they're like, no one wants to talk about wealth management or investing. So, I mean, when you're thinking about that, yeah, I mean, you want to make it interesting. I I love what I do. I told you earlier, I get to meet fantastic people. It's really interesting. Every day is different. And, you know, you want to communicate some of that enthusiasm to people. So they say, like you said, tell me more. Tell me more about that. And that's the opening where you can not overwhelm them, but, you know, give them a little bit more detail and, you know, keep going.
1: I love the response of tell me more because your response right back to them can be about what specifically? Like what part do you want? Because like you just said a moment ago, there's that feeling, well, nobody wants to hear, nobody wants to talk about wealth management. Okay, but they may want to talk about something else. So is it, you mentioned one of the, that uh, you love the range of people you get to talk to, great. Tell me more about that. What kind of people do you get to to connect with? Those are interesting stories, and it doesn't have to be about tax tips. That's you know, they're not looking to you for advice in this first conversation. They're just looking to get to know you as the person, and I think those those are great stories to share.
2: Yeah, I, I agree, and I, I, as I said, we try and do that.
1: Yes. Yes. Terrific. Okay. So moving out of that 24-hour influence challenge, everybody go home, work on your elevator pitch, be ready to share it with the next person unapologetically, enthusiastically, show that you love what you do. From there, let's move on to communication and context. So let's talk about some mistakes because much as we hate to admit it, we've all made them at some point or other. So tell me a story about a communication-related mistake that you've made. And if you could have a do-over, what would it sound like?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a very common mistake. People in our, you know, in our industry or, or in any sort of complex sales role, everybody tries to deliver too much content too quickly. Not everybody, but it's a common mistake. Sure. And it's one that I made and I made a lot early on in my career and where you have this tendency to try and give as much information as possible as quickly as possible. And I, I have a lot of good stuff to share. And let me tell you about all of them at once. And And so what winds up happening is you wind up telling them nothing. They just, they don't keep the key points. And so, you know, I can remember I had a, you know, very big pitch meeting, prospect meeting, whatever you want to call it. And I was very excited to get in there and tell them all the great things that we could do for them, which I obviously really believed that we could be helpful to them. And I just wound up overwhelming them with information. And at the end, I I knew that was the case because in our follow-up the questions that were asked were basically everything I'd already told them. And it was clear that the message was lost. Yes. And so my mistake, and it's been made a lot, is trying to deliver too much, too soon, and not sort of summarizing the key points.
1: Yes. And I think that is, that's what I like to call the expert's curse, that... We we know so much about our own unique industries, and it's all relevant to us, and it's all interesting to us, and it all helps us to make decisions, etc. So we want to share everything. It's it's really mostly done out of generosity and enthusiasm, and wanting to to over deliver. But there's a difference between over delivering and overwhelming. And I think that was a key phrase that you used that you don't want to kind of open mouth turn on fire hose and (laughs) drown your audience (laughs) where they, they, all they wanted was a sip of water and now they're drenched. So you definitely can't ingest all that comes at you like that. And similarly, your ears can't ingest that much content when it comes across as a barrage. So if you were to go back to some of those conversations that you've had that were very fire hose delivered, what would you do differently if you could have a do-over?
2: Yeah. I mean, so I, Thankfully, I get a lot of do-overs. <laughs> you know, we, we do these kinds of meetings all the time. And so what I have done differently is I now start a meeting with, here. you know, here are the things that we want. If you remember nothing else, that you'll walk away with these key points. And you make it a few, two, three at most. You know, here are the things we want you to remember about us. And then you go through the meeting and it could go in various ways. You can get into the pit. And at the end, I say it again. If you remember nothing else, here are the three things that we want you to take away from this meeting. And there are a couple of key points about us as a firm, you know, me, or, you know, what we can do for them. And I actually then follow it up with an email. So when I say a do-over, you can't go back in time and, and do it over, but you can start with the next one. And that's what I've done. And, and does it work every time? No, but I think it's much more effective. And the success rate has been way more doing that than going with a hundred page deck and just sort of saying, now here's all the things we can do. Instead of, I now summarize it with a few key points.
1: Yes, yes. That whole tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them and tell them what you told them adage does come back handy. Certain things just don't go out of style. And as long as they help to simplify, it just helps it to stick. People aren't really good at remembering more than two or three things anyway.
2: Yes, that's right. So I I literally say that. Here here are the things that I want you to remember. Yes. Here are the things. Yeah. And even still, you'd be surprised. Sometimes people don't remember.
1: Yeah. Yes. And they're definitely not going to remember if you give them more. So stick with the simple, no. definitely preface, let them look for it in the middle and and remind them again at the end. And if you can do it in writing as well as a follow-up reminder, so much the better. That multimodality learning that we all have is uh, something that should be leveraged, not fought for sure. If you know that it's going to help somebody make sure that your message sticks, hey, use every tool in the toolbox. That's my philosophy. That's
2: right.
1: So what about some of the difficult conversations that we have. Um, what's an example of a time when you had to share bad news or initiate a difficult conversation? Nobody likes those, but they are a natural part of everybody's world at some point or other. Uh, how did you handle it? Should you have done anything differently?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in our world, we have a lot of different difficult conversations all the time. You know, market, particularly from an investment standpoint, markets go up, they go down. When it's down, it's, it's never fun and there are difficult conversations. And so, you know, we had a recent example in March of 2020, where, you know, with the pandemic coming on, the markets reacted very unfavorably in a very short period of time, historic short period of time. And so that creates bad news. Fortunately, we did fine. Our strategies held up, but it's still not a fun time to be calling and saying, you know, the market's down, your investments are down, and here's why. And so those are difficult conversations. They're not easy. But there are a couple of things that I do and I think are best practices. Uh, you know, I picking up the phone is really important, right? These are there are certain conversations you can handle with an email. And then the bad news typically is much better with a phone call. And so everyone is a one-off phone call, making sure you listen, talk, clearly state what's going on, and then most importantly, provide some context and a strategy of what we're gonna do about it. And it's important to go into those conversations and share that. And so I can tell you, in March of 2020, I we I picked up the phone. I talked to every single client, talked about what was going on, and you know, shared our strategy. And thankfully, this time it, it sort of ended pretty quickly. Hmm. Pandemic's still going on, the market's recovered pretty quickly, and and so that that was obviously a help. But obviously, bad news in that short period of time. Those were tough conversations. You know, every one of them was was a one off, and making sure that you know we we talked to every person.
1: I would imagine that that's different you know a lot of times when we think about crucial conversations it's it's something like either a performance evaluation or a termination or you know where you're going to have a conversation that someone isn't you need to initiate an uncomfortable conversation that somebody may not see coming something like this is a very different situation where look if the market's tank The world knows about it because it's all anybody's talking about. You can see the numbers, you see the graphs. There's no surprises involved. So you may be making the call, but it could be because they've already left 17 voicemails for you. So you're just returning the call at this point. So they know it's coming. You know it's coming. It's just a matter of having to engage and having to have that conversation, not how to initiate in the sense of they have no idea what you're about to tell them, they obviously want to know how their portfolio is performing, et cetera. But uh, it's a different situation when they're they're starting by saying, "Oh my gosh, what's happening? What do we do?" That's a very different world for you.
2: Yeah, I would just I would say that if if you're waiting until someone calls you, it's it's too late. You know, you want to make sure that we're out in front of it. And so mm-hmm. I would tell you that most it was important for me to make the call, not to wait. And so we, you know, that, that I think is really important, particularly if there's bad news, you want to make sure that it's you that's initiating the call. Um, you know, I picked up the phone and said, I'm calling to talk about this. And, and it also demonstrates the fact that we're on top of it, yes. right? Because, you know, we are, most of people in our industry would be. It's just, it, it's a little bit of a nuance, but if you're calling, it's making the difference and sort of waiting, getting a voicemail, and then calling back two days later when, you know, it, anything could have changed in that period of time.
1: Yes, yes, controlling the narrative, getting in front of it, yeah. showing that you're not running away from it. I, I think that's the first responder, first mover is, is always a good position to be in strategically. So what about the virtual world? You mentioned, okay, we've set up the notion of the pandemic, which kicked in, gosh, a couple of years ago. Now we're still dealing with it. Over all that time, how has your virtual presence improved and what do you think would help you help your team to be even more effective engaging with clients here in the virtual?
2: Boy, that, that what a great question. I would say that Zoom, you know obviously it's sort of cliche. everybody does it, but you know we're, we're doing this on Zoom, right? You, yep. you need to have presence. And so I have spent and, and our Brown brothers, Harriman, you know our team, me we've spent a lot of time thinking about you know our Zoom presence, how we're conducting client meetings. You know, your background, you know, I'm sitting in my office in Philadelphia with the skyline behind me, but I'm not always doing that. Sometimes I'm in my basement and, you know, what, what image am I presenting when I'm talking and having these client conversations over Zoom? So I think that from a virtual presence standpoint, forget about LinkedIn and all that. I mean, that's important too, but my day-to-day interactions are over Zoom and this is what clients are seeing. They're not, they're seeing my background, how I'm dressed, what's going on, the noises that are in the background. (laughs) And all of that's important. I would tell you early on, as an aside, I shunned, you know, I have a six, four and a two-year-old. there was a lot of noise in the house (laughs) trying to have these difficult conversations. And I would tell you that, you know, a lot of the clients, they would run in and it was almost endearing in that way. And The clients
1: or the kids would run in?
2: The kids. (laughs) kids. But yeah, originally you were tempted to sort of say, you know, stay out of here, lock the door. And, you know, it was just a part of life. Everybody was dealing with it. Clients had dogs walk in. I had kids walk in and it just was sort of where we were. So as much as we tried to make a professional, you know, it was, we were all going through it together. And so I think sort of just being authentic and, you know, having that presence was was something we all struggled with.
1: Yes, yes. I think if I had a dollar for every, Animal tail that I saw walking across a computer screen in front of the camera at some point or other. You know, the cat's walking along the keyboard, or you know, the dog nose sticking its way into the uh, into the iPad lens, et cetera. It's 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 really humanizing in a lot of ways. Has been okay. I, there's there's limits of course to everything, but it certainly has added an entertainment value to being in the virtual world, say the least for me. Now, what about succession planning? Um, when you think about people coming up through the ranks and, and preparing the future generations of leadership. And even for you moving, moving ahead, if you've heard advice along the way, what is something that would otherwise disqualify or delay the potential for an internal candidate to take a higher level leadership role? And what would they have to do to fix the problem?
2: Yeah, there's countless examples that I've, I've seen over the years. I mean, I think you have to first start out that people have to be qualified, right? So sure, I'll make these various candidates all have the base technical skills. Right. But particularly, you know, the higher up you go, and, and you advance in organizations, it becomes inherently more subjective, you know, the, the number of positions are limited, you know, as you go up the ranks, who's going to get them? Is it inherently a judgment call? Sure. Considering If everybody else is, is, you know, equally technically qualified. And so You know, I think it's, again, it sounds pretty simple, but attitude is a big, you know, having a positive attitude, being a positive force around the office, communicating with all different stakeholders, that adds up. And I have seen examples of people that are very technically strong, but just had poor attitudes about, and it could be about anything. It was either overly focused on their own promotion or just not interested in engaging with others. And it is clearly delayed their advancement. And so that's not common about anybody specific that goes over many years. But to me, having a very positive attitude and being a positive force around, it actually buys you a lot. And so I think that's a key for anybody coming up is to have a very positive attitude around the office.
1: Attitude, attitude. Yes. What you say, how you say it, who you engage with and what you share, all things that change it. I think the attitude is almost, especially at the upper levels it's a bigger indicator of what the corporate culture is going to be like because culture starts at the top and rolls its way down. So if if that's what you are projecting and that's what you're telling indirectly, your direct reports, that is what you appreciate, then you know, negative attitude of, of one way, shape or form, then they're going to follow in your footsteps because, hey, it's what it took for you to get to the top. So- or higher up at least. So to have them then emulating you thinking it's what you want, I would imagine that would be a dangerous place to be.
2: Well, and also, I mean, you see it in that there's a little bit of an attitude, well, I went through it, so you have to too. Mm,
1: the hazing and,
2: experience. And that's, I think that a lot of that's changing. I think, you know, we're it's a very tight labor market. There's a very big demand for talent. And I think that attitude has really gone out the window. And I think now it's more about well, how can we make this How can we encourage people, move them up, give them what they need to build their careers and empower them? And I think that's a big, big focus. It's not just here at Brown Brothers, but it is everywhere. All the competitors that I talk to, it's the same, same struggle.
1: Yes. Yes. So now we've, we've talked about people going to the top of the, of the career ladder. Let's talk about those who are just starting out on the first rung. Finally, if you were able, if you were asked, I should say, to give the commencement address, at a high school graduation ceremony, what advice would you give the graduates, whether or not they go to college, regardless of career goals or majors? What's the one thing you'd tell them they have to do to be successful?
2: I mean, not to be repetitive, but have a positive attitude. Mm. I really, it's incredibly important and it will propel you very far. You know, you have to be technically good, but a good attitude would be, is probably the most important thing.
1: So I'm gonna poke a little deeper on that. I want you to be specific for me. You're talking to a bunch of 18-year-olds. So what does positive attitude actually mean? Is it just like always pretending to be happy?
2: No, because that that could be inauthentic, right? If there's mm-hmm. bad news and you're happy, yeah. That, that doesn't so how do you bad. tell
1: an 18-year-old what it means to have a positive attitude?
2: Early on, say yes. Open yourself up to experiences, have a positive attitude about trying new things. That's personally and in the office. Make sure that you're constantly learning and being exposed to different things. You know, that that's having a positive attitude. It's not just being fake, happy all the time. It's saying, you know, I'm here to learn, I want to do as much as I can, and saying yes to a lot. To me, that's that's what it's all about.
1: I love it. Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. How can people learn more about you and Brown Brothers Harriman?
2: Sure. BBH.com is, is the company website. I'm on LinkedIn, so you can search for me, Joseph Chot. And my email is joseph.chott at bbh.com. So happy to engage with anyone or follow up.
1: Terrific. Thank you once again for joining and sharing your wisdom with us today.
2: Thanks, Laura. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.
1: And to everybody else out there, thank you for tuning in. As always, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on iTunes so we can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sicola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite.
0: Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, the communication secrets of the C-Suite, the show for readers who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.